Hi everyone, this is Mark Iskowitz, Executive Editor of MMNM, and welcome to this week's episode of the MMNM Podcast, where we interview people of note in and around the world of healthcare marketing. I'm flying solo here with my guest Jane Saracen Khan, the noted healthcare economist. See how we did that, Jane? <laughs> I like to work in the compliments early on. Uh, we're going to continue talking about you in the third person here for a moment, but welcome. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Our listeners are no doubt familiar with her work, not only her quick takes on social media via her Twitter handle, Healthy Thinker, as well as her more considered takes on her Health Populi blog. She's also written reports for the California Healthcare Foundation, and she's also in good company, like her recent guest blog with co-authors Lisa Soonan and Susanna Fox on the sale of 23andMe to United Health, which was great. And she's a popular guest on the speaking circuit, including uh, moderating a panel a couple of years ago at our spring conference, MMN Transforming Healthcare, uh, about the value and price of drugs. And she's been appearing at many venues these days because she's got a new book out. It's called Health Consuming, and it's all about healthcare consumerism, a trend which she's been forecasting for at least a decade, right? Absolutely. Say about that? Yeah. That's right. And we'll get to all that now. So thanks for joining us. And thank you, Jane, for being here in the studio. I'm happy to be here. And I have to say also thank you for making me a um, healthcare transformer in 2016. So I feel like ah, I'm right. back in the family today. Thank, thank you for you. reminding me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She's also one of the you know gosh darn nicest people, people you'll ever meet. So thank you. Uh, it's, it's great to, to have you here. Thanks. So, um, uh, you know, one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you, and we'll start off with kind of a bio question, is how did you get into the world of healthcare uh, economics? Sure. I studied economics as an undergrad at University of Michigan, which is my home state, Go Blue, and um, became a young economist in the energy industry, interestingly enough. And we started to think about solar, and you know, I was kind of leaning to all of that. And then my mom had been diagnosed with a very rare leukemia in 1971, and I was very young when she was first diagnosed. And she outlived her prognosis by many years, but um, when she passed away, I looked at the EOB as a very young economist still in college and wondered who the heck's paying all of these monies. Um, as it turned out, she worked for a school district and was well covered by a union, I'm from Michigan, don't forget, mm. health, uh, health plan. And long, long story short, it made me think about who pays for health care. And I retooled back at University of Michigan hmm. in public health and economics. There was no single degree in health economics. We're looking at the um, early to mid 80s. Mm -hmm. um, so Uwe <laughs> Reinhardt was but a young economist mm -hmm. then um, and Martin Feldstein. And they were sort of the gurus that I studied under whose books I read. Long story short, I became a healthcare consultant, moved to Philadelphia. And so all I've ever done since leaving graduate school at University of Michigan is not be an academic health economist, but a health economist deploying that mindset as an advisor management mm -hmm. consultant in healthcare for you know almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. It was a long time. So that's an important part of, as well, is that you've kind of deployed this skill set as a consultant. That's right. Not academic. And I think mm -hmm. about that a lot. So I've worked across the whole ecosystem on purpose, not just with mm -hmm. hospitals or pharma or med device um, or home care, long-term care, but in fact, across everywhere, because that's how an economist can look at uh, the bird's eye view. And that's really now um, on my own in the, in the last 15, 18 years, 
Um, that's the brand that I am, which is mm -hmm. really ecosystem-wide thinking about health care and health in general. Hmm. And on, another one of the ABCs, if you will, of, of uh, economics is forecasting. Mm -hmm. And this has got to be a tough time for anyone in, in the business of forecasting, right, given all the uncertainty with the uh, how the healthcare policy front is shaping up. Yeah, absolutely. So after working 10 years in big accounting consulting firms here and in London with my banker husband who pulled me over to London mm -hmm. for a few years, which was mm -hmm. great, um, I returned then uh, ascending to a partnership in a firm and I decided not to pursue that. I wanted to be mm -hmm. a mom at some point and live a different life than in those days, a woman in a an accounting-based consulting firm could live. Uh, that would involve nannies and being mm -hmm. away a lot and I wanted a different vision. So long story short, I started Think Health, my firm. And um, one of my earliest clients was Institute for the Future in California, in Menlo Park, even though I was based in Philly. So I worked 10 years as an affiliate, and that's they were a major client for me and relationship and helped me launch my firm under Ian Morrison there at the time, who's still a great friend and mentor, and then Wendy Everett after Ian left. Um, and I made some of my best friends working there, Matthew Holt, the founder of Health 2.0, Mary Kane, um, lots of people, Molly Coy, who's still... Uh, out there and, and doing great. Uh, but anyway, that's where I learned my forecasting chops mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. continue to uh, forecast in my own way, largely lately scenario planning because it is so murky. Right, right. It's like wargaming, right? It's just... Well, playing out the different scenarios. It's it's great you say that you're you're brilliant as we knew, but <laughs> when you think about um, Herman Kahn, no relation to my husband or me, um, hmm. in the old war game scenario, it was think the unthinkable. That was from the Rand Institute, thinking about mm -hmm. nuclear war. That's mm -hmm. where scenario planning came out of. And so we think about what we know we know, and this is what I tell all my clients, and a few might be listening who I've done this with over the years. What do we know we know? The certainties. What do we know we don't know? The uncertainties. And the third category are these things called wild cards, which can really mm -hmm. blow things out of the water. You can't just do a straight line forecast anymore. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. to think about what do we know? What do we know we don't know? Um, and then those other niggly things that could mm -hmm. really blow you, you, you apart. And right now, yeah. there are so many wild cards we have to think about, ponder, to help our clients, whether it's hospital groups, mm -hmm, uh, pharma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of work in technology, as you know, both consumer tech and health IT. Um, and for all these different stakeholders, the uncertainties are huge. And then the wild cards you have to think about, right. like for a big food company, it's CBD now. Um, so we have a couple big food clients and looking at nutrition and health, food as medicine, big part of my book has to do with food in the social determinants chapter, which we'll talk about. But um, CBD, there's no FDA regulation and they're wrestling. And in the meantime, Kroger is beginning to carry foods with CBD mm -hmm. with health claims, little c. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that is a big wild card right, right now for right. us looking FDA, at... Yeah. The food right. is medicine. Consumers yeah. saying, I'm in pain. I want to avoid opioids. So let's try some CBD to make me happy. Sure, sure. Well, you know, that's just one of many wild cards that we're thinking about right now. Yeah. If there was one question that you get most often, could you put your finger on that? 
in terms of the future. What your clients are really worried about. Oh, um, the most common scenario right now is, are we going to have single payer Medicare for all, no public option, or are we going to have universal health care that will have a public option? And there are many flavors in between. Um, I believe we will have some uh, form of universal care. We might get to 90%. I don't know. It depends on the mechanism. But there's enough uh, universal in terms of popular support for health care beyond just covering pre-existing conditions. And as mm -hmm. we were starting today, I mused about how I'm not sure how you cover pre-existing conditions without something to hang that on. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the conundrums I'm facing now when we go and look at the de presidential debates or uh, any other venue. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the, the skeleton that we're hanging things on? What's mm -hmm. the noun? Mm -hmm. And it has to be some sort of either catastrophic plan or another sort of health plan. Mm -hmm. So that's the big question. You know, when we create Create certainties and uncertainties on four axes, you know, um, universal care versus not, and then going across who pays, public, private, you create mm -hmm. the four the four cells in a scenario. And I know that's a little wonky for people listening. I'm, I'm using my hands to draw a picture and you can't see it. But um, that's the question now is mm -hmm. how are we, what is health insurance going to look like in America? Right. And, and everything is being contested, including the individual mandate. And so how do you pay for this is, is yet another And prescription question, so. drugs within that, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, will sure. that be covered or not? Right. And even just looking at medic, just if we talk about Medicare and the donut hole, right. uh, that alone we could spend uh, an hour on mm -hmm. and more. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, let's get to the book because we don't want to forget to talk about that. Of Thanks, course. Mark. Sure. Uh, and uh, one of the you know the first chapters that you encounter is uh, a chapter on the, the patient as, as payer. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that was one of the most deeply researched chapters um, mm -hmm. in the book. I was very impressed with the, the bibliography there. Uh, but um, you know, it, you you frame uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the chapter as the unique problems that we deal with in America, you know, in terms of uh, both shopping uh, for the lowest prices on prescription drugs, but at the same time saving, putting money aside for those deductibles, you know, that, that always going to creep, creep up, um, as well as, um, you know, say the, uh, the retail style payment tactics that, that we uh, often encounter um, the first time that we register for a procedure, like I encountered when we registered my daughter to get her adenoids taken out, you know, mm -hmm. oh, you got to pay this $600 right up front. Uh, hello? You know, <laughs> right. what about the patient? What about the caregiver? Right. Um, and a really startling fact that, the, that, that, you, that you noted there was that the patient is now the third largest payer in healthcare after the government and employers, which I thought was really, That's um, right. th you know, in a way not surprising, but really just startling to see it in, in black and white. Um, so, um, you know, and, and you go through a lot of examples uh, like the EpiPen, you know, how that became synonymous with, with price gouging. Um, but, um, you know, that was a great example, as you said, of, of consumers kind of voting with their feet, you know, and, and, and the moms, let's say, said, OK, we're going to we're going to go to the generic. And, and they, they really affected the market share that way. You know, when, when you look at uh, more direct out of pocket costs being taken up by the consumer, where's the next point that you see consumers flexing that muscle? Yeah, I think it's in the retail health space and people saying, uh, especially younger people, uh, like one of us in the room, uh, 
saying, I don't need a medical home anymore. I don't need a GP who I have a relationship with. More and more younger people, my daughter's 23, she's one of them, and she informs me a lot when I look at her. She's a young working person now with health insurance, but she'd much rather go unuse the app that her employer provides for a Skype-type visit in a HIPAA-controlled, HIPAA-compliant environment uh, with secure messaging, which is important, to consult, say, with for a dermatology problem than to go to a dermatologist and take time. So I think we're seeing with the advent of CVS, with just announced CarePass, for people mm. like my kid who wants to have a pill, an Amazon pill pack-like experience mm. to have prescription drugs delivered, but also go to a CVS to their new health hub concept that they have, mm -hmm. and then do these virtual care visits. So we are seeing this upending of the traditional patient um, physician relationship. And the question is, uh, is that genie going to be out of the bottle pretty quickly? Or will we still be able to preserve that relationship? And then what does that mean for how you keep track of care? There has to be some sort of electronic health record that's quite malleable and cloud-based. And um, I have a whole chapter on digital health um, secure or insecure. And the, the question here is who owns that data and where is it? And right now it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, and we're skipping sort of to a, a later part of the book, but it's very important that ultimately the individual, the payer person, the consumer owns her data and can control it in a secured way through a cloud, possibly secured by blockchain. We're not mm -hmm. there yet, mm -hmm. but we now have what are called FHIR standards, F-H-I-R, which mm -hmm. take data that are in an electronic health record and data from our wearable technology and other places and can appify within a traditional EHR the data to make it more liquid and move around where it needs to go. So the vision that I have for this is not just my vision, it's people like Dr. Eric Topol and my friend Johan Sonnen up at MIT and the Go Info Studios, we're all talking about how do we enable this future of a person owning his or her data. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. this is a world beyond HIPAA. And that again is another big subject. We cover it some in the book. And I had a lot of assistance from Devin McGraw, who's a very prominent health privacy person, used to be with ONC, and the Office of Civil Rights, and now is with Citizen, that's C-I-I-T-I-Z-E-N. Hmm. Started by an ex-Appler, right? That's right. And so she's now um, the Chief uh, Regulatory and Privacy Officer at, at Citizen. But she vetted my chapter nice. for uh, peer review. And so did Ligia Ricciardi, who's also quite famous in her hmm. area. Uh, as well. And she's with Carrium now. She used to be at ONC as well. So I had lots of friends helping me out in, in the book. But um, to your point about what's going to upend this, you know, what's, what's the next thing? It's a combination of things. It's got to do with data being, you know, the new currency. And mm -hmm. that's how we're going to drive outcomes. It's going to be with retail health formats, because we, the consumer, as payer are looking for that experience. So if we don't get them in a traditional doctor's office or emergency room, then we'll go to urgent care, we'll go to a retail clinic, we'll do a virtual visit, 
which mm-hmm. are still mm-hmm. young and new. Only about one right. in ten people mm-hmm. have done this yet. But I believe we're at this hockey stick pivot mm-hmm. point right mm-hmm. now, and lots of funding going on for that. What, what, what do you think is going to precipitate that hockey stick and uh, usage of tele, telehealth, telemedicine? Um, so I just wrote about this uh, two days ago in Health Populi on, oh. on uh, Monday. So it would be uh, August uh, 4th on Health Populi, but you'll see a blog on telehealth this week. And it's it brings in um, new data from J.D. Power, we know J.D. Power for, for cars and for washing machines mm-hmm. uh, and experiences in retail. Well, now J.D. Power is evaluating telemedicine providers, 31 of them, and has a report mm-hmm. coming out in November. Gotcha. Well, I got early data um, to look at satisfaction so far with telehealth. So we know one in 10 Americans has used a telehealth visit. And when people use it, they're pretty satisfied and the mm-hmm. costs are pretty uh, low, lower. Mm-hmm. So if you add, if you bring quality mm-hmm. together with cost, that's really what's driving people for, to these new formats. Right, um, And then employers who are sponsoring telehealth, and most large employers now have it as a benefit that they, that they pay for, but employees aren't yet well informed about the availability and, and the access, accessibility mm-hmm. of telehealth. And that was one of the major messages mm-hmm. that came out of the J.D. Power study, is that mm-hmm. once people use it, they taste it, they love the convenience, mm-hmm. the access, and sure. all of that, and their perceived quality, but so many people aren't aware of the benefit and the benefit of the benefit, why right. it's why Whether it can be it good. As a covered benefit. As a covered benefit. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as um, employers start to educate employees and then younger people access it as well, and there's word of mouth, we'll see younger people educating parents mm-hmm. and sure. older people in their lives about it. And that's what always happens with new adopt, adoption of new technology. Sure. And then you see, you know, the drivers of that, you know, uh, overall, obviously, is, is the shift to value-based care. But mm-hmm. the, the policy is like, you know, Medicare Advantage uh, or Medicaid's rule that you have to, the government has to pay for the, the lowest priced form of transportation, which was a real boon, of course, to the ride-sharing startups right. Uber and Lyft and a whole host of, of new brokers um, uh, in, in that area mm-hmm. um, that are kind of um, helping facilitate that, uh, like Hitch Health and, and, uh, and Circulation and so on and so forth. Yeah. And just uh, to, to round that out, um, you're smart to bring up the reimbursement aspect. So uh, coupled in my JD with my JD Power analysis is a look at the new ATA, American Telemedicine Association, report on the state of the states, they used to call it. Now they, they're calling it the two, 2019 report on the states. On Ann Mon Johnson, she, since she took over ATA, it's really driving a lot of change there to broaden telemedicine into telemedicine telehealth, digital mm-hmm. health in general, and just um, as Lisa Sunan and Susanna Fox, uh, Ann Mont Johnson and I go way back too. So uh, we're, we're a bit of a cabal. But um, you'll see in my blog post, looking at the 50 state analysis and more and more parity in terms of how Medicaid and Medicare are beginning to, Medicaid and state level and Medicare nationally are starting to bring parity mm-hmm. to the payment and mm-hmm. the access points, um, and also to who provides the telehealth visit. So doctor, nurse, other provider, pharmacist, more, mm-hmm. there are as many as six categories in some states that are approved um, to categories mm-hmm. of licensed professionals to do telehealth visits in mm-hmm. some states. So mm-hmm. again, tipping right. point time. We're starting right. to see once parity is covered um, for cost and, and then type of provider, 
um, it, this is really going to move right. quite quickly in the next couple of years. Right. So the licensing was one thing I heard they needed to, to work out. But, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you also talk about crowdfunding for medical expenses, which was really another fascinating area. But um, Very American. Like, yeah. We don't find that anywhere in the world. And I do a lot of work in Europe. Uh-huh. And this just is not a reality to, to them. And they don't understand. And a lot of doctors sure. over there in Europe ask me about it. But no, crowdfunding, GoFundMe sites are now mm-hmm. very common. And mm-hmm. they're also very dangerous. There's a lot of scams right. on right. there. So it's a real caveat mTOR space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Spectrum Health example is a, is a really good one for people to check out on their own. Um, let's move on to chapter uh, three, going in order here. We're not, don't worry, we're not going to get to every single chapter, but uh, I just thought, you know, hard to you know, have you here and not ask for your opinion uh, on what you call the Amazon priming of consumers uh, to kind of raise the bar and their expectations for uh, the healthcare experience. Uh, and, you know, you break it down nicely. What, what, is the, what do we like about the, about the prime experience? Mm-hmm. A, you know, when your goods are going to arrive, two days or less. B, you know how much that item is going to cost before you pay for it. And C, you can see what other people think about it, you know, with Amen. all the online reviews. Right. So um, are there signs of progress that healthcare is actually able to meet that higher bar for the Amazon Prime experience? Yeah, I think so. And this is one of the areas where you said I go around and speak a lot. This is a big theme in a lot of my talks lately. Last week, I spoke at the Consumer Healthcare mm. Products Association. That's the over-the-counter part of the business. Mm-hmm. And they were lapping up this topic because mm. they're all about this. Yes, They're right. all about experience at retail and beacons right. and help helping you manage your way through the store. And don't leave. Wait, there's more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they, they love this, that part of the world. But so do consumers because this is a growing self-care environment. Again, mm-hmm. we're used to pumping our own petrol, except in two states. I think New Jersey and Oregon are the only two. We're checking out groceries. I just went to an Amazon Go store in Chicago a couple weeks ago. It's astonishing. Like You just take things off of the shelves once you have the app on your phone, and you walk out. And you think, I'm getting away with something, but you're not because it's in your credit card. But um, a, a lovely experience. So, yeah, where are we starting to see green shoots mm-hmm. of the Amazon priming experience in healthcare? One area where some folks are showing more transparency are hosp- some hospitals and some clinics are starting to list prices that are relevant to you. Some mm-hmm. are even bringing it uh, through an app to your phone. Uh, working in a back office area, pairing to your insurance to show you the true transparency for you. The idea, say, in pharma that um, we've recently heard about showing retail prices of a drug on a DTC ad, and I will just say this because it's me. I read some um, things about that. Yes. I bet you did. I think you've written some things <laughs> about that in MM&M, one of my go-to sources. Oh, thank you. But um, it's not relevant to an end of one and healthcare is highly personal. So if mm-hmm. we want to do mm-hmm. true personalized medicine, people want transparency. That's transparency to me. You know, what, what is, how's it going to affect my budget and my healthcare? So um, another example of an Amazon prime experience is Geisinger in central Pennsylvania, wonderful mm-hmm. health system. And they have um, a food pharmacy uh, where they will advise people with type 2 diabetes how to Mm -hmm. eat better. And they actually have fresh food and teach you how to read labels. But they also provide in another part of Geisinger a refund 
if you're not happy with your care, they have a fund to give you money back, hmm. like a really? warranty plan mm -hmm. you'd get for your car. So we're starting to see examples taken from the financial services industry, the travel industry, and other service industries, hospitality, baking it into the healthcare experience with the rise of people who can help us do this, which are the new uh, cadre of service designers, UX, UI designers. Mm -hmm. So a big theme in um, a lot of my meetings lately is how do we bring design thinking into healthcare mm -hmm. the way um, a Marriott might do it or a Hyatt in hospitality or uh, your best retail experience like a Nordstrom experience or an Amazon experience. So a lot of the people who do designing in those places are coming into healthcare now. Mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. a very scarce resource that's a very competitive field sure. for uh, tell your loved ones to, to, to enter that because they'll be mm -hmm. fully employed. But design thinking UX, is uh, really important. Titles, so yeah. what IDEO does, what Frog Design does, mm -hmm. um, I mentioned Yuhan at GoInvo Studios in, in Cambridge, um, all these people are bringing the experience. Amy Cueva, Mad Pow, redesigning mm -hmm. what an EOB looks like mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. delight. And mm -hmm. Amy and her firm at Mad Pow work with financial services, education, and healthcare. Wow. So they're bringing all that experience to bear in the medical bill. Mm -hmm. Now, one challenge to this uh, higher bar uh, for the UX would be transparency. And as yes. you point out, we don't have it truly yet because. A, you know, um, it depends on the condition, you know, in terms of the availability of pricing information, say, for procedures. As you mentioned, the little experiment with, with transparency around drug prices really, you know, was not helpful. Um, uh, referrals are also very powerful, and then they can sometimes overcome data that's available. Oh, I've just got a referral from my doctor for XYZ specialist. I'm going to take that um, and, and go go to that person. Um, and and on, oops, on, a surprise medical bill arrives. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's yeah, frightening right, in right. that environment right. because your own doctor doesn't know uh, who may be in your network. Right. And, and this is, or again, network, very, right. very right. American. And, and doctor uh, online doctor reviews are also quite spotty. There was a one study you cited that showed that for 20 percent of doctors, they didn't have any reviews. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to kind of shop for your for your doctor. Yes. Um, but um, these things, it's kind of like the early days of the Internet. You know, you have this abiding, you know, faith that they're going to figure it out some way somehow yeah over time and um again you know uh, we have these stakeholders in healthcare that are digging their heels in what is a health plan mm. anymore what is a doctor who's taking on risk all of a sudden there's actually there are actuaries behind the doctor helping the doctor manage risk for a population there's mm -hmm. cvs mm -hmm. buying right. aetna is that right. a pharmacy anymore mm. no that's mm -hmm. a vertically integrated uh, health uh, provider um, who can take on risk because they've got Aetna mm -hmm. baked in. Mm -hmm. Then you have mm -hmm. Cigna with Express Scripts. What is that combination? Mm -hmm. So we've got all these collaboratives right. coming together right. to help address this question that, that you're posing, which is what's going to move us forward in transparency and the consumer service. Mm -hmm. It's all of these 
comings together in different mm -hmm. flavors, different ways. And we don't know, this is the uncertainty, how these are all going to turn out. We are living in an experimental times. But yeah. we feel yeah. like because of Amazon and also consumers saying, I've had enough, I'm paying, I want the experience. So you have a lot of different forces from the ground at the consumer and then Amazon and other forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the economy, which, you know, as an economist, I have to bring up the fact that next year we might be have have some rocky yeah, rocky road i'm sorry uh but it's you know we this week it, it's timely the market tanked and um we need to be realistic about that as well because if the patient is the payer and she and he aren't saving and i talk about mm -hmm. how americans are very poor savers in the book even with a health savings account we don't save enough and it's a brilliant triple tax advantaged vehicle an hsa um we'll be in trouble and that's where those of us who have to look maybe 10 years out start to think okay that's when more boomers are retiring haven't saved student debt also in the boomer population mm -hmm. for grandchildren and older children so um we have to think ahead about what healthcare might look like and what's the value around the services we provide beyond the service or the pill itself mm -hmm. great yeah so that's a perfect segue to another area i wanted to ask you about that's kind of progressing although kind of in fragmented siloed fashion and that's this um, forces aligning around the social determinants of health, mm -hmm. uh, which of course has become something of a buzz phrase in the industry. But you know, you see these announcements from like Intermountain Healthcare and uh, uh, Humana um, and Caremore that are have all uh, announced initiatives to address the social determinants of health. Yeah. And just this past month, uh, you had another big one, kind of the SDOH uh, deal of the month, which was CVS Health. Um, right. announcing a social uh, determinants platform and using uh, Unite Us, which is kind of quickly distinguishing itself in the SDOH uh, platform mm -hmm. arena, uh, providing the digital infrastructure for that platform. And what I found interesting about that was that the um, providers in the CVS networks are the pharmacists in their you know, 9,700 drugstores mm -hmm. um, or in their minute clinics or in their health hubs uh, can now, within their EHR, make electronic referrals to people in this social network. And not only that, but um, anybody can tap into that network. So it allows it allows social providers from food pantries to churches to barbershops to kind of join that supply chain, if you will. Um, so this seemed to be a tipping point in terms of um, if, if anybody in the industry um, uh, pharma uh, is still sitting on the sidelines for social determinants of health. This could be a good time to jump in because, um, you know, if providers are, are making referrals for uh, social services right alongside prescribing for therapeutics, that seems yes. like an opportunity for biopharma. It's a huge opportunity. Um, a little sidebar about the CVS acquisition of Aetna, because they didn't just buy an insurance company, they bought also the Aetna Foundation. And the man mm -hmm. who led uh, the Aetna Foundation is Dr. Garth Graham, who's a longtime social determinants of health guru, mm. 20 years in really? it before it was sexy, mm -hmm. the new black. Mm -hmm. Garth Gra Doc Dr. Garth Graham has right. been around and he's okay. somebody I admire fiercely. Mm. And so he's now with the CVS Aetna Foundation, but he's yeah. a big driver underneath this okay. and is really 
part of the intel inside right. of mm-hmm. of mm. CVS's move toward this. He seems to be the one who very uh, exciting. the choice of Unite Us. Yes, he and he gets it. So he's been around this block for a long time, mm-hmm. and a smarter guy in that field you mm-hmm. will you you will not meet. So the biopharma opportunity, um, funny and uh, insightful story. Uh, okay. I will S I G H T, not C I T. Insight. Um, I was with a very major a biotech life science company a couple years ago, advising in a sort of town hall setting their managed markets group. So those of you who don't know managed markets, those are the people dealing with the big payers, Medicare, Medicaid, VA, self-insured employers. And this company was launching a very expensive six-figure new drug. I won't say what it was for, a new therapy, uh, or don't want to give it away. But when I was um, meeting in this town hall setting and being asked a lot of questions, um, I asked part of this group who dealt with Medicaid um, approval on a state-by-state basis, um, are any of you talking to the SNAP benefit or food stamp folks in the states that you're working with? Because if Mrs. Jones gets the drug approved at the six-figure price by Medicaid, and Mrs. Jones doesn't have a refrigerator that works well and can't buy the food she needs to eat to be healthy, your drug will not work as well in Mrs. Jones as the promise of it should. Mm-hmm. So right. they never thought about this. Does <laughs> Mrs. Jones have access to healthy food, transportation, electricity for her refrigerator, etc.? These are the opportunities. Mm-hmm. If you have a new, new thing coming out that's approved by the FDA, and man, you've made it onto the formulary, congratulations. But that's not enough because Mrs. Jones has to be able to thrive mm-hmm. on that product. Or right. guess what? Next year, you won't be on the formulary anymore. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity mm-hmm. right. is right. not just because you're a nice guy or gal. It's because mm-hmm. you want the outcome to be the outcome that's promised, the promise of the therapy. So whatever Mrs. Jones needs, um, you can work in these ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And this is the opportunity for pharma to go beyond the value of the pill. We've all talked about this for well over 15 years. What's the value? These are things that are valuable to the patient. So I, I urge all of you to go back to JAMA, an article in October, I think it was 2015 or 2016, and I will give Mark the real citation so he can put this on the blog site. The article in JAMA was called, Value-Based Payment Requires Valuing What Matters to Patients. It's a mouthful. Meaning, if you're taking on risk, you better understand what the patient's life is like. Mm-hmm. What does mm-hmm. Mrs. Jones value? Right. Because if you're doing an orthopedic surgery and it's the orthopod is happy to, to heal a bone within X centimeters, Mrs. Jones doesn't really care about that clinical outcome. She wants to get on the floor and play with her grandchildren. Mm-hmm. That's Or Mr. Jones wants to swing a golf club again. So it's sort of like, doctor, will I be able to play the piano again? You know, two guys Mm -hmm. walking into a bar. It's get to know what's important to the patient, and the social determinants get to that. Right. You know, if Mrs. Jones goes to bingo and she's got type 2 diabetes and likes salty snacks or sweet snacks, let's make sure when Mrs. Jones goes to bingo, there's some healthy snacks in her backpack that she brings with her magic markers for the bingo set, et cetera. 
So this this could be you know the the force that that you know dare I say helps pharma overcome that product feature benefit kind of mindset that that we often see them lapse into when it comes to marketing. They're very comfortable you know focusing on the product, and mm -hmm. you know no surprise there. It takes a lot of money to get over that finish line. You know it's a major accomplishment as you said, and you don't want to necessarily take many chances. But this this seems it just seems safe. You know obviously you know, focusing on the greater social milieu in which your product is going to be used mm -hmm. uh, seems, seems like a no-brainer. You work with partners, you work with grocery store chains, you work with the Y if you're working with kids, mm -hmm. a pediatric product, you work with banks on financial wellness to help people pay for things. I mean, there are all kinds of social determinants mm -hmm. and yeah. you have to think about what's the condition you're working with, the demographic or the different personae, because mm -hmm. uh, there'll be a few different types of people uh, using your product. And then what's relevant to them is a new kind of market research to do. Right. And, you know, these, there's a lot of determinants that uh, sort of cross um, therapeutic categories like diabetes has a, a number of determinants that impact that patient's outcome and, and, and cancer has another uh, set of determinants. So there's, there's, uh, you know, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for biopharma to get involved there. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I, you know, we could go on and on, but uh, I want to respect your time and, uh, you know, it's been really fascinating. So uh, time flies. It, it did. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Of course. We're just going to finish up with some housekeeping items here. Um, basically, uh, I want to just let everybody know that we just launched on Monday um, our latest social initiative called Inspire the End, uh, which seeks to inspire our audience of healthcare communicators to submit creative design to elevate gun violence to a public health issue and bring about an end to the scourge. And you can read about that on MMM's social media channels and on our website. We just posted our editor-in-chief, Steve Madden, posted um, the, his piece on that today. Um, if you haven't already, also be sure to take our career and salary survey. It's uh, open for business uh, and um, we're nearing our goal. So please be sure to fill that out and help us compile the most accurate picture of salaries uh, in, in the industry. And finally, be sure to purchase your tickets for the MMN Awards coming up uh, in October uh, at Cipriani Wall Street. And you can find out information about that on our website as well. Well, that's going to do it for us. Um, you can read uh, Jane's, uh, Jane's content at uh, her Health Populi blog and, of course, her Healthy Thinker handle. Uh, so thank you again for coming in, Jane. Thank you both so much for your hospitality. Absolutely. Anytime. Uh, happy to welcome you from Philly anytime. Um, and you could read my stuff, of course, at MMM online. Uh, and so that's going to do it uh, for Mark Iskowitz and uh, Carrie Gavitt, our producer. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on the MMM podcast.